Well, we are going to jump in, if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Uh, we've got two weeks left in our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, and today we're going to consider um, the controversial gifts of the Spirit, the list that is given to us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, a list that there are many, and I just want to begin by stating this, there are many within evangelicalism, within Christendom, uh, that have held to a view that's known as sensationism. Uh, the cessationists believe that these, this particular list of gifts, uh, what are considered the sign gifts, uh, are gifts that cease to, uh, uh, to be seen in the church once the canon of Scripture is closed. Um, and I, there are I just want to recognize that there are, there are many uh, within this camp that I love and respect uh, greatly um, who are totally orthodox, uh, even though I disagree with the position. And the reason that I disagree with the position is uh, there's too much, uh, uh, well, first of all, there's no evidence in the New Testament. There's nowhere that actually declares that the gifts of the Spirit would come, would cease to manifest in the church once the scriptures were closed. This is an assumption. Uh, secondly, uh, the, the witness of the church over the last 2,000 years has been marked by too many tangible evidences of legitimate manifestations of things that sit with outside the parameters of what I call normal life. Uh, there have been manifestations. Legit, even, and what's funny is that many within uh, the cessation camp claim uh, the church fathers as vehicles for supporting their view, but many of the church fathers stand in direct opposition. For example, Augustine, who's often uh, utilized as one who declared that the gifts were no longer for today, actually changed his position when he personally experienced healing uh, through his ministry. Um, Origen is the same, Clement. Uh, there's manifestations of power, uh, signs and wonders that have been seen uh, in the church. The thing I want to be clear about is that with the rise of Pentecostalism over the last hundred years, uh, really the last 120 years, uh, there has been an overemphasis. So I think the two general tendencies with this passage, uh, specifically this passage, uh, is to either make this the centerpiece of the Christian faith, uh, which is uh, the signs and wonders are everything, uh, or, it's, or is to completely ignore them or write them off as no longer for today. And I think that it is our responsibility as we've continued to consider that it's not about the manifestations of the Spirit, but the real gift is the Spirit himself. And also recognizing that the Spirit is, one of the great symbols used of the Spirit is that he's like the wind. Nobody can control the wind. Uh, and from which direction it blows, we do not know. And I think that what God is looking for is a people that are yielded to him, that his spirit might manifest uh, the glory of Jesus through us however he sees fit. Uh, and so I disagree with schools uh, within evangelicalism that try to teach people how to actually utilize these gifts or, or manifest these gifts because these gifts are not for us to claim and to control for our own. We yield to the Spirit. He has the sovereign right to work through us as he sees fit. It's also wrong for us to declare that these gifts are for everybody, for Paul is very clear within this actual chapter. Do all prophecy prophesy? He expects the answer to be no. Are all apostles? He would expect the answer to be no. And what he is showing is that there are a variety of gifts 
uh, and, but there's one gift, really, uh, and that gift is the Spirit. So a variety of manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit, we receive one Spirit who equips the church to be a, a, a solid witness and testimony to the person of Jesus. So I just wanna start there, okay? Now we're gonna try to cover nine gifts in 30 minutes. I did it in 40 last time. So the fly took five minutes off the message. Um, all right. <laughs> Without the fly, we'll, we'll, we'll lose five minutes. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses four through 11. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And I just would argue right there that Paul is actually establishing that the manifestations of the Spirit or the, the way that the Spirit gifts the church is played out in our service to one another. So this is all a work of the Spirit, the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities that what the Spirit does inside us is meant to be worked out into the common life of the church. And this is what he says, and there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So you cannot separate the gifts of the Spirit from the gift of the Spirit himself. The gift and the giver are one and the same. <laughs> so what does he go on to say? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. This is really important. This isn't to manifest the sensational. It isn't to draw into our individualistic ideas of what we think we ought to get from God. But he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. We live in an age in which the church has turned Christianity uh, into an individualistic pursuit. What can I get from God? Uh, and the question is not what can I get from God, but how can God utilize me for the common good of his kingdom, for the common good of his people? And so we have to keep in mind that these letters are written to churches. And yes, do they have individual application? They do, but the application is always meant to be worked out in the context of community. It's very, very important. Uh, for one, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom or a word of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. Notice Paul is showing these are different spirits these are manifestations of the same spirit. He says, utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit, not saving faith, but, uh, but the kind of faith that Jesus talked about, faith that moves mountains, uh, extraordinary faith that's inspired by the spirit of God. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, working of miracles. That word miracles is the Greek word for power. We considered what the power of the Spirit was last week. This isn't about turning water into wine. This is about the supernatural manifestation of God's authority through a human vehicle or vessel. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits or discerning between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one of individually as he wills. Notice, this is all given by the Spirit, not to everyone, but to each one as he wills to give. And so I would say that really the call upon the church is that we should be available for him to manifest any or all or whatever he wants through our lives. 
I want you to also recognize that I'm specifically focusing on the sign, uh, the sign gifts. Today, this is not an exhaustive list of the ways that the Spirit manifests. Um, I don't believe there is an exhaustive list in the Scriptures. There's five lists in the New Testament, uh, and those lists um, have variations uh, and, and actually serve kind of different purposes in the context of the letters. Uh, Romans 12, though, verses 6 to 8, I think it's really important. Uh, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. Once again, there is a variety of gifts and they are distributed as the Spirit sees fit to people as he wants to. It's not about what you want. It's about what he chooses to give. The question is, is are we available? And do we seek and ask? God, I ask that you would use me however you see fit. I'm not afraid to ask for a gift even if I don't get it because our children ask for things all the time that they don't get. My son asked me for a Gucci tracksuit jacket when I was in L.A. He did not get it because I do not make enough money. <laughs> um, and even if I did, he still would not have gotten it. But I'm, I'm a good dad. I'm like, I'll take you to Target, dude. We'll get you a sweet, <laughs> sweet Adidas jacket. Uh, but I, I think that it's, the thing is, was I bummed on my son for asking me? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Um, but <laughs> no, I wasn't. In fact, honestly, as a dad who loves his boy so much, I'm like, I wanted to get it for him. I, want, I wanted to give my son a gift because I love him. And I want to give him gifts even when he doesn't deserve it because I love him because he's my boy. I think that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give us uh, but are we even willing to ask? Uh, and God has chosen uh, to be a God who allows his children to commune with him and to, and to actually make requests of him. And it, then it's us trusting him uh, to his sovereign purposes to give to us uh, not necessarily what we want, but what we need or what he wants to accomplish through us. And so um, what I wanna do today is I'm gonna break up. There's the, there are nine gifts that are mentioned here. And we're going to break these gifts up into three categories. Uh, it'll help us actually understand these sign gifts a little bit better. And I was, I'm using, utilizing Michael Green's um, outline for this uh, from his book, uh, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. It's an excellent book. Um, I recommend it. Uh, his chapter on, on the gifts of the Spirit is the most balanced that I've read. Uh, and he breaks it into three categories. Gifts of utterance, which includes tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. Gifts of action, uh, which includes uh, miracles, uh, miracles, faith, and, uh, and healing. And then finally, gifts of knowledge, which includes a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, and then finally, um, the, uh, discerning of spirits. So if we begin here with the gifts of utterance, uh, I want to begin with the, probably the most controversial of, of the gifts, uh, and that is the gift of tongues. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 2, Paul actually breaks out, and clearly in, the, in Corinth, uh, there was an abuse of this gift. There was actually abuse of many of the gifts. Uh, the Corinthian church had become obsessed with the spectacular, if you will. Uh, and it had become spiritually proud in, in the ways that, this, that, that God had gifted them. And remember, Paul takes chapter 12, which gives us the list that we're looking at, and chapter 14 to specifically zoom in on, on what the gift of tongues is and 
uh, and interpretation in contrast to prophecy. Uh, but what's right in the middle of 12 and 14? Well, you're right if you were to say chapter 13, but what is chapter 13? Um, chapter 13, he says, desire the spiritual gifts, the higher gifts, but still I will show you a better way. And what does he say in chapter, what does he spend all of 13 talking about? Love, the supremacy of love. Now, when we talk about the unique manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the, church of, in the church of God, especially these sign gifts, which I do believe are available today, I think I, I, I want to bring clarification to what I think um, are some abuses that have come through Pentecostalism and some um, in, in ignoring that has come through others, uh, the other extreme of the church to a balanced look at these gifts. But the, the important thing that we need to understand is that all of this is for the common good, and it needs to be for, for the gifts of the Spirit to manifest in a healthy way. It needs to be bedded in the foundation of love. In fact, Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of angels or men but have not love, I say nothing. And he says, if I do signs and wonders, it means nothing without love. And he says, even if I give up my body to be, a, to be martyred without love, I accomplish nothing. I say nothing, I do nothing, I, it means nothing. All of these realities, he's like, all these gifts, if it is not embodied in the love of God, that the ultimate gift is the gift of salvation itself, which comes to us in the person of Jesus. And that all of these things are meant to bring witness and glory to him. And that if it doesn't do that, then we're, we're just wasting our time exploring the sensational rather than really asking the question, how do we become more yielded and step out in faith into all that God would have for us. Uh, so the gift of tongues, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, after following up on the chapter of love, he says here, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, I believe that the gift of tongues is for today. I personally have not received that gift. And so the way to make this message go faster is that any gift that I have not received, I will not talk about. So let's just move on to the next. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, I always have something to say about, about anything, uh, even if there's quality in it. So let's just pray that the Spirit inspires my tongue to speak truthfully about what the Scripture has to say about this. I do have friends. Um, in fact, as a staff, we were talking um, at our staff retreat, and I asked the question as I was preparing this message, over the last couple of weeks, I asked the staff, is there anyone here that actually speaks in tongues? And we only have one staff member that does. And this shows the uniqueness of the gift. Um, and one of the abuses within Pentecostalism is the belief that this gift is for every single person and that, and that it's actually a sign of the baptism of the Spirit. And I think that that is um, some bad exegesis, honestly. Uh, Paul makes it very clear that these gifts are, will not be received by everyone, and the Spirit gives as he sees fit. But the real question for me, and, and I think for all of us, and especially if you utilize that gift, uh, is to really be able to answer the question, what is it? Um, and the tongues uh, in the New Testament uh, is the ability to speak in, in a language that the speaker has not learned, that he does not understand, and that is incomprehensible to the listener. Uh, and I think that this is important uh, for us because 
how we interpret Acts chapter 2, traditionally what I've been told is that there are two kinds of tongues. Uh, the tongues that occur at Pentecost uh, and then the tongues that occur here in Corinthians. I actually don't see anywhere in Scripture that tells us that we should actually separate uh, different, uh, it says here, different kinds of tongues. So how, what that means, I think, I, I, I think is varied. But Paul, I don't think, is trying to create a whole new theological category from what happened in Pentecost. What we don't understand is that Acts is not a book. Luke is not concerned with theological grids. It's a history, and he's merely recording what he saw, what he witnessed, uh, and as a testimony to the truth of who Jesus is. And when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, we're told that they immediately began to praise God in unknown languages, and that those in the, around them heard the praises of God in their own language. The question is, is did they hear it in their own language? And I, I read an interesting argument that there's only one kind of tongues, and that is a, a tongue that is not human language, but that those that were there were given the gift of interpretation. I don't know. I think that Luke records what he witnessed. And, what, and the point of the story is that they were uttering something that was spirit-inspired in a language that they did not know, and that those around them understood it. That's the point of the story. I don't think we have to actually create some major theological grid out of that. But the point that Paul is making is that there is disruption happening in Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, is because they're utilizing tongues in the context of a gathering, and it's chaotic. And he says, listen, the purpose of tongues, it's a beautiful thing. He says, one speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men, but directly to God, uh, for no one understands him. Notice that, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And so that tells us that tongues is, is the spirit enabling the person to speak to God in prayer that actually is in the spirit and is not, as Paul goes on to say, fruitful for the mind. Um, and I believe as we look at interpretation, uh, what we'll see is that Paul actually encourages those who have the gift of tongues to pray also for the gift of interpretation. Uh, and I think that this is, this is a powerful connection. I was talking with another dear friend um, here at the church who, who prays in tongues, and he, said, he gave me an interesting insight. He said, for him, it's like a primer um, to praying with the mind. I begin by praying in the spirit, and it moves to prayer with the mind. And I think that that in another, is another way of saying it's the, the linking together of both the unknown, the spirit crying out, what, it can't, what the mind cannot comprehend, uh, but then the mind actually being inspired by the spirit to comprehend that which the, what, what the heart is groaning for. And I've, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We've met, I've met people that have incredible uh, gifts of prayer that go beyond just the call for everyone to pray. They just have this, and I've also, I've been around people that pray in tongues in a way, and this is one of the things that we're called to actually have is discernment of spirits. I've been around people who pray in tongues where it feels like the spirit of God, even though I do not know what's being said. And I've also been, because I used to tour uh, in, in a Christian band and was subjected to every type of Christian church there is. I remember playing specifically in a church in Georgia where there was a pastor that came in. It was, he was a, a, a revivalist from Florida, and he said, hey, when you guys come out today, don't say anything that contradicts me. First of all, if a pastor says that to you, there's something not fundamentally wrong, okay? Uh, and 
Uh, and, I, and, and he wasn't saying it to me because I had tattoos, because he knew that what he was doing was outside of the parameters of scripture. And so when we came out to play the, the kind of closing afterglow set after the sermon, all these people were laying on the floor under sheets convulsing, and there were these people speaking in tongues. And I tell you, my spirit said, this is not of God. No mention of Jesus. It was like hair on the back of your neck stand up. I'm like, I don't know what I'm witnessing. I just remember calling my booking agent and saying, please, is there any way to vet the orthodoxy of these churches that we have to play at? And it was just like this bizarre situation where I don't even know what the purpose of it was uh, because there was no mention of Jesus. It was all about, the, about the, this man's ability to manifest power. And then these people um, convulsing like they were demon-possessed. It was, it was insane. But I've been around people that spoke in tongues where it just has the fragrance of Jesus on it, even though I don't understand it. And so I think that this is one of the things why Paul closes, that, closes this with the need for the discernment of spirit. But I think here is the key, is that tongues, just on its most basic level, is the ability to pray with the spirit what the mind cannot comprehend. I think at its most basic level. What that means, uh, is there any known language of angels in Scripture? I, not that I know of. When Paul says that even if I was speaking the, in the tongues of angels, uh, I, I don't know if he's being poetic or sarcastic, uh, but we know of no known language of angels anywhere in the Bible. Um, so the key is understanding that this is a language, the ability to speak a language that the, the speaker has not learned that he does not understand, and that is incomprehensible to the believer. Paul would strongly disagree uh, with those who maintain that Christians should speak, that all Christians should speak in tongues. And he makes it plain that the gift is at the disposal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 4 says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Tongues edify the individual. And this is why Paul says it is a lesser gift than the gift of prophecy, which we'll consider in a minute. So uh, less time is needed on this, but the question of interpretation. Now, Paul says that there are times where tongues can manifest within the gathering, but he gives very, very specific boundaries to that and actually argues against it for the most part, saying that if a non-believer comes in and people are just busting out in, in an unknown language, how will those who come, are coming in to explore the gospel, how will they even know what's going on? Won't they, he says, won't they think you're crazy? And I think that the importance of interpretation and the interpretation of tongues is a gift which, uh, which I think is also controversial uh, because it's not, it's not translation. It's interpretation. Once again, it's a sense of what the Spirit is saying through the other and then trying to bring forth that communication. It's not translation. It's interpretation. I believe what the Spirit is saying through my brother or my sister is this. And so the challenge of that and the best safeguard against the abuse of both of these gifts is that, um, especially if it's in a group setting, is that, it's, that the interpreter will normally be someone whose own life and Christian maturity has won the respect within the local community. Once again, all of these gifts are meant to be worked out for the common good of the community, even though the gift of tongues is for the, is for the uh, 
edification of the believer, the edification is meant to lead us into deeper levels of community and communion with one another. And I think that even this, this whole reality, if tongues are ever utilized in a group setting, it needs to have an interpretation. Uh, and it needs to be built upon love, not spiritual, uh, spiritual arrogance, which can often accompany these gifts if it's not grounded in the centrality of the gospel. I think tongues and interpretation, those who have the gift of speaking in tongues should pray for the ability to interpret. That's exactly what Paul says in, in 14, 13. Therefore, one who speaks in tongues should pray that he may interpret. And then why does he say that? He says, because if I pray in a tongue in verses 14 and 15, he says, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. It's interesting, Paul actually makes a claim that he actually sings uh, in this spiritual language, but he says, I will sing with my mind also. Uh, and so this is the guideline. If then we were to take 1 Corinthians as our guide, we must recognize that tongues, along with the interpretation, can be a genuine gift of the Spirit of God to certain people, and Paul expected the gift to be used in private devotions for the edification of the believer and in public when the two gifts could be employed together. It's that simple. Okay, so the gift of prophecy. So that, those are the first two gifts of the gifts of utterances. But the gift of prophecy is one that we are told in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, it says, pursue love, this is his word to the church, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why does he put the emphasis upon prophecy? Well, the first question we have to ask is, what is prophecy? Uh, there are some within the church that have tried to claim that prophecy, teaching, and preaching are all the same thing. If they were, there would not be different words used to describe three unique gifts within the church. Uh, and the church seemed to understand the distinction between the three different realities. Uh, prophecy uh, is specifically receiving a direct word from God for the situation on hand through the mouth of one of his people. It's not what I would call uh, the necessity of seeing the future, but it's literally, as I said earlier in this series, prophecy comes when we are so surrendered to God, so fully available to his spirit that we literally become a conduit by which God can speak a specific word to his people in a specific moment in time, uh, in place and time. And so this is important. The, uh, the need for a prophetic in the church is great right now. We want to hear directly from the Lord. I always pray that God would give me a spirit of prophecy, to give me a prophetic voice when I preach, because I want you to hear from God, not from me. Uh, and the natural temptation or the natural tendency is to let our flesh get in the way of what God wants to say to his people. And so the prophetic is, I always pray, God, give me a sensitivity for that I might know what to say. If anyone listens to my sermons, like first service and second service, people always say, like, they're so different. And it, part of that is because I want to be fully available to whatever it is the Spirit wants to say to the people at that particular moment. Um, and that's another way of excusing off-the-cuff preaching. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 14, um, verse 3 says, the one who prophesies, compared to the one who speaks in tongues, which edifies himself, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. In other words, when the prophetic voice is available to the church, when God recognizes that we are available conduits where he can actually speak directly through us to those that we are in community with, that is when the church becomes a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered community. 
where we are totally ready and available for God to utilize us at any moment to speak directly into whatever situation we find ourselves in. And I think that that kind of availability, why does Paul put the precedence upon prophecy is because prophecy speaks to the totally yielded man, woman, boy, girl, to the full reality of God, where I feel, and I, I've had this happen where I've gone to a service where I've heard someone preach and it felt like they wrote their sermon for me, or I've had people come to me and say, like, how did you know that about my situation? I'm like, I don't even know who you are. And I think that this is one of the unique elements of even these gifts being manifested. Sometimes the gift is working through you. God doesn't even necessarily attend for you to be aware that the gift is working through you. Uh, and I think that this is a, is a powerful uh, reality that needs to be uh, recognized in the church today. Without the prophetic voice, the church is powerless. We gather weekly to hear from God. That's why we gather. Uh, so 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, verse 4, he says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. This is, makes it easy to see why it was so prized. For prophecy meant domination by the Lord, the Spirit. In prophecy, God communicates directly through us. Uh, and I think that this even goes on because of its intelligibility. Uh, because prophecy, I believe, is both in spirit and mind simultaneously. So tongues, I like to say, it shouldn't be that hard to think of the ways that are, we can communicate with uh, where it's not fruitful for the mind. I bought a ping pong table for the youth group, which is actually just becoming a ping pong table for the staff. Uh, and there's this unspoken language that happens. Uh, when we, and all of, all of us are different. Uh, Evan and I, when we hit the ball or miss, we go, ugh. It's like these, it just comes out. When Tom, he's violent, he smashes down on the table and lets out a little yell. Uh, some, some people yelp. They're like uncontrollable. It's like the, the, the pleasure that, I, I, I love this, Tim Mackey, every time I've gone to dinner with him, he, every time he eats, it's, this is the closest that we get to tongues that I've seen manifest in him. He'll just eat and he goes, mmm, mmm. Mm. He just like, he moans the whole time he eats his dinner. It's like so... <laughs> It's like this, the pleasure center. Uh, it's like, and I don't think that his mind's engaged in that activity. Uh, and there's a lot of things that we do that are like that. And I think that this, that the tongues is where the spirit is actually kind of bubbling up in a way that it just overwhelms the senses, uh, but it's unfruitful for the mind. Prophecy is where the spirit overwhelms the senses and clarifies the mind. And, and a word is, is given. Uh, and I've sensed that. I've sensed that. And it's, it is a powerful thing to feel, uh, to feel one's self be completely yielded to what God wants to say. And the reason that it's so important that there's a criteria for prophecy is because there was a lot of people that I believe are um, empowered by spirits to speak all sorts of things that is not the spirit of God, and they aren't proclaiming the glory of Jesus. And here is one of the things, is that nothing can derive from the Spirit of God if it contradicts his revelation in Scripture. It's one of the great criterias of prophecy. Uh, and the willingness to submit to church leadership, I think, is actually a second criteria of prophecy. I've had false prophets come into our church, and actually they have no intention of being a part of the community. They see themselves as a self-selected prophet on God's behalf that come in. We had one guy that came, and he wanted to preach against our church, and he did this all over the all over Portland, preaching against the church, 
feeling that he alone had received words from God of what the truth was. There are false prophets that are all over the world right now that declare all sorts of things that have nothing to do with Jesus or his glory. And I think, and they're, and they're self-promoting. Paul is constantly warning the churches in his letters against false prophets, people that came into the church and said, Jesus has already returned. And they're claiming this in the spirit of prophecy. I don't deny that they weren't under the control of the spirit. I just don't think it was the spirit of God because people follow them because they're powerful and people follow false prophets today because they're powerful. They're convincing, they're compelling. One of the things that we need to understand is that historically, every time a real revival has broken forth, there has always been an element of imitation right in the midst of it. Satan manifests something that's very close to what's happening, but there's something fundamentally wrong with what's being, there's something just enough off. Uh, he's, he's a liar. He uses just enough truth uh, to basically put forth his lies. And I think that we need to understand that. And this is why prophecy is an important gift for the church, but also a dangerous one when we don't have a discerning spirit. Uh, okay, so those are, the, those are the gifts of utterance. What about the gifts of action? The gifts of action begin with the gift of healing. Now, if I was to share with you, it's interesting. Most of us believe, I would say most of us believe that God is able to heal. And I would say that many believers have come um, into contact with someone who's experienced direct healing. I've seen healing as we followed, we follow at Door of Hope, the command in James chapter five, verses 14 through 15, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save one who is sick. That is not a guarantee of physical healing, but it is a call to pray for that and to believe God for it. Uh, and it says, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There is both a spiritual reality of healing as well as a physical reality of healing. And salvation doesn't just simply mean to save, does not simply mean to rescue. It also means to heal. Um, but I think that one of the challenges is that the gift of healing has been turned into, uh, once again, um, a show amongst some in Christianity where it's no longer a gift of the Spirit, but it's about the healer. I just want you to know that the word healer never appears in regards to what God gives to the church. He talks about the gift of healing. He says he gives to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, preachers, and teachers, he does not, in that list, say that he gives to us healers. Not that people won't have a unique manifestation of the gift of healing, but the gift of healing is not meant to be, physical healing is not meant to be um, so normative uh, that, that it becomes abnormal to maintain sickness. And that is where I get really frustrated uh, when, when the gift is touted as something that is available to all and if you don't have, the only reason you would not get healed is because you do not have enough faith. I think that that is a diminishing of a really beautiful gift that God sometimes manifests for his purposes. I have had two friends die of cancer. Don't think for a second I didn't pray that God would heal them, but God had different plans. And here, here's the thing, even if he does heal you, you're still eventually gonna die because we live in a fallen world. I, mean, I look out at my friend, Seth, who's a doctor. He is in the business of healing. Uh, but often those whom we heal just end up sick again because that is the world that we live in. Uh, I think it's interesting, even in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, when Jesus gives the command uh, to his disciples, he said, heal the sick, raise the dead. 
cleansed lepers. And there are groups that are proclaiming uh, resurrections from the dead. I have never met anyone that has been raised from the dead miraculously. Uh, and the only testimonies I ever hear about are in places of the world where I've never actually seen uh, tangible evidence. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm not even saying that it's available today. But even if someone is raised from the dead, which God can do if that's his prerogative, and we see a few cases of resurrections from the dead in the New Testament, Jesus being an important one. Uh, but I think that, the, that, that, that they, are, they are rare. They're exceptions to the rule, not the regularities. Uh, and don't, I've only met one person who's ever raised anyone from the dead, and it's my good friend Judah, because he's a heart surgeon, and he used to attend Door of Hope, and he lives in Minneapolis now. And one day I, I had coffee with him, and I go, what, what'd you do today? He goes, dude, I raised someone from the grave today. And I go, really? <laughs> what'd you do? And he's like, we turned off a guy's heart for, for two minutes, his body. We had to kill him for two minutes so that I could sew up his aorta that was just blown out. And he goes, it was so exciting. I literally raised him from the dead. I'm like, I don't, I don't even like the way you're talking. It's very scary <laughs> to me. <laughs> it was so funny though. He's like, an hour later, he was talking with his family. It was amazing. Uh, that's the only case I've, I've come across. So I think that these are the things, one of the things I think is important to note about healings is that healings diminished in Jesus's own ministry as he moved toward the cross. In the book of Acts, we see healings, but all of these signs were meant to attest to the person of Jesus. And I think that that's really important. So I think that when we declare that to be, uh, that all, um, all who are sick have the ability to be healed, I need to remind you that Paul himself had to leave his friend Trophimus sick at Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20. He could not apparently do anything about the illness of Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25 and 27. He advised Timothy when suffering of a gastric complaint to use wine in a medical sense. Uh, has anyone tried that for healing? Uh, what about this? He claimed that he had an eye affliction in Galatians 4.15 that, that continued to plague him to the end of his life, was racked with a thorn in the flesh, uh, which God in his wisdom did not see fit to remove. Uh, the Lord gave not healing, but the strength to bear the affliction. In fact, we considered last week that the power of the Spirit comes in human weakness, and often that weakness comes in affliction. Here's the thing. Healing's a very sexy gift. People want, it, people want that gift. But if you look just a little bit further down in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at the bottom in verses 28, I think it's like 27, 28, he says, he says he's given us these gifts and he says healing. And then he says right afterwards, helping. I think less people are supernaturally healed uh, than are healed, which means that the gift, the supernatural gift of helping is a very, very important gift to the church. We don't talk about that one, do we? Because people that are sick need help. And we as a church need to help one another. That's a beautiful gift of the Spirit, as beautiful as the gift of healing, and probably more normative and more necessary. Just like he continues right after helping and says he also gives the spiritual gift of administration. You're like, why that one? I don't want that one. That gift stinks. <laughs> but why does that gift bad? God is not a God of chaos. What does administration declare? It declares order. I would not survive without those around me with the gift of administration, specifically right now, Gina, who's sitting over there, who is literally between her and my wife and the rest of my staff or my brain that makes sure that I actually just show up to meetings. So the gift of administration is extremely important. And I would argue for her, it's very spiritual uh, because I am not an easy person to work for. And so I think that we, we downplay, we're like, that gift is less, but this gift, that's a, 
we have to really ask ourselves, what is the motive? Because there's really one gift, it's the Spirit himself. And so does God heal? Yes, he does. Does he heal always? No, he doesn't. Does he heal often? Maybe, maybe not. It's his prerogative. The question isn't, isn't uh, will he heal everyone? Uh, the question is, 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 how does he sovereignly see fit to work within any particular situation? And are we available? And do we have the faith to believe him for it? Um, the next gift is the gift of miracles. Now, that word miracle is, the, is where we get the word power, dunamis. And that word power, uh, I think that this is really important. John 14, verse 12, Jesus says, And truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. I think when we th- read the gifts of miracles, we start thinking about wine or water turned into wine or staffs turned into serpents. But really that picture of power is that supernatural ability to actually reflect the glory of Jesus. It can be power in communication. It can be power in life. Uh, It is a miracle to be able to actually change direction. I was living this way. Have you seen people who have been given the power of the Spirit to overcome serious addictions? Have you seen people given the power of the Spirit in a moment to proclaim with boldness what they would usually be totally timid to declare. I think that, that we, we diminish the word when we turn it into a magic trick. When we think of power, is exactly that. Paul said, I didn't come to you in eloquence. I came to you in a demonstration of the Spirit and what? Power. It's authority. It's the ability to say, thus saith the Lord, and recognize that the whole universe is at your back saying yes and Amen. And I think that this is really important when we think of acts of power. I think it includes deliverance ministry. And that, as I talked about last week, and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually tear down spiritual strongholds, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness. And uh, that, that God does, not everyone uh, is, has the power, nobody has the power in and of themselves to cast a demon out of someone. Uh, or, to, or to tear down a spiritual stronghold. Only as we become conduits for the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of Christ, who is the one who is victorious over the enemy. In fact, we as believers are told to flee the, the devil. In fact, what did Jesus teach us to pray in, uh, in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, protect us from what? The evil one. Uh, so I don't think we're supposed to go out chasing devils, uh, but I do believe that the Spirit working through us can give us authority and power over spiritual realities. Uh, So the final one here is the gift of faith uh, within within the gifts of action. And the gift of faith is unique. It's not saving faith uh, for all people need faith to be Christians. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But I believe that this is the special ability to trust God in the dark when all the odds are against you. I think it's a, it's a spirit-fueled faith, the ability to hold on to God in prayer over many years for the conversion of some loved one, the sure perception of the will of God on a particular matter in the future, which enables you to act as though it had already happened. That was a, a, I think God gave Darcy and I a, a, a gift of faith to start Door of Hope. It, none of it made sense. We didn't have financial backing to do it. Uh, we didn't have a building. I just said, I'm gonna start a church. I believe God's in this. And we just started it. People, you know, people go through like these camps on how to plant churches and get assessments and, and they raise funds for it. Like we didn't do any of that. I'm like, I'm not working. We should probably start a church because I'm worried if we don't, we won't go to one. So seemed like a good reason. 
good faith, good jump of faith. I'm like, we know it's important. Maybe we should just start one. Okay, let's start one. Uh, most people would think that's crazy, but it seemed very logical. And, it, and what's interesting, I think when it's a spiritual gift of faith, it's, there's an ease to it because it's in the power of the spirit, not in the flesh. I think Hudson Taylor is one of the great examples of this. He had, he had the gift of faith in founding and maintaining one of the world's biggest missionary societies on a complete absence of financial backing. He had an absolute refusal to ever ask for funds and an unshakable conviction in the will of God to provide what was necessary. Uh, it's powerful. Uh, you cannot heal in the name of the Lord without having faith in the great healer himself. You cannot exercise a demon in Christ's name without a deep exercise of faith. The faith that moves mountains is a gift of the Spirit, and it is closely allied to action in the power of the Spirit. And uh, that comes from Michael Green. I think it's a great insight. So those are the gifts of action. Now, finally, the gifts of knowledge. The gifts of knowledge um, are this. Uh, the first one is the word of knowledge. Uh, and, and when we think of knowledge, we have to ask the question of what kind of knowledge, because the scriptures actually have a lot of negative to say about no particular kinds of knowledge as well. Paul warned in 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Remember what we looked at in 2 Timothy? Always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the Lord. So when we talk about Christian knowledge, one of the first realities is we're talking about relational knowledge. It's the recognition that God is with me, and for me. But this unique gift, a word of knowledge then, is not insight into a topic. Um, I'm in a very interesting book club um, uh, with Seth and a couple other doctors, and we don't pray for words of knowledge uh, when we're talking about, we, I should maybe start doing that when we're talking about subjects I don't know, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about spirit field insight into, into a vast variety of issues. What he's talking about is the specific utterance that comes directly from God and cuts to the heart of the recipient. So I think that the word of knowledge is that God can give us insight into the people that we are called to minister to, uh, that there's a yieldedness. And I think for your community groups, to go to the community group, and when you pray, like, pray, God, give me insight to speak words of your truth into the lives of those that I'm interacting with. It's the ability to sense what needs to be said. It's an important gift for counseling uh, as a Christian, as a pastor. I always pray, Lord, give me, a, give me a word of knowledge for the person that I'm called to minister. Help me to see into their situation, to actually participate in their pain, uh, to, to be able to actually speak your word, your truth into this situation. Or someone who's unrepentant, Lord, give me a word of knowledge that would bring about legitimate repentance. Uh, in, the hearer's, in, the, in the hearer's mind and heart. I think that this is the unique gift that's being talked about. Um, and I think that this is very much uh, what Paul has in mind when he talks about this particular sign gift. Because then we talk about not just the word of knowledge, but he also says the word of wisdom. And how are those different? I mean, what does James say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach. Uh, but he must believe that God will give it to him. I think that the word of wisdom is different from the word of knowledge. Word of knowledge is insight into a situation, into a person uh, that's given by God to speak God's truth into a particular situation. A word of wisdom is, I believe, God's ability to speak into our hearts and minds and bring to remembrance 
things about himself, specifically the gospel, the truth of the scriptures, to give us illumination and insight. Uh, this is one of the things that, as a man who was without college education and struggled with so many years of drug use that I was paranoid about my ability to understand the scriptures. I began to pray fervently, God, would you give me wisdom? Give me, this, give me a spirit of wisdom uh, that I might be able to communicate the truth of who you are, but not more than that, that I might be able to understand the truth of who you are. And so this kind of knowledge is the gift of God's wisdom being directly um, brought into our lives. It's the gift which enables a Christian to draw on a broad understanding of the purposes of God, the scriptures, and supremely of Jesus and his cross, and to speak appropriately with wise utterances for the building up of the members of the Christian body. And so when I always pray, God, give me wisdom into your text when I'm preparing a sermon that I might accurately depict your heart uh, to your people, that they would hear from you, not from me. That requires a spirit of wisdom. And then closing, the final gift in this list is the gift of discernment. And I think it's fascinating because this is, this is not just spiritual discernment in the broad sense of the term, but the varied abilities that are needed to discern whether a spirit is from God or not. In a church, as charismatically alive as Corinth, it was a gift of crucial importance. That wherever God's spirit is working, the enemy is there working in the midst, counterfeiting. That we need desperately more than ever a spirit of discernment. Discernment without love, though, is a dangerous gift because it can quickly become a critical spirit. To be able to see clearly into the problems of things without having a basis in love and a desire to build up is not a good thing. Uh, it becomes more of a curse than a gift. But the spiritual discernment is, is one who has humbled themselves before God and has become a vehicle by which the Spirit himself allows us to be able to test the spirits to know what is from God and what is not. And I think that this list is alive and well for the church today. And, and I, my prayer is that we would understand this, that these gifts may be available to us, but it is at the Spirit's prerogative that they are used. And utilize. The question is, is are you available to him? It's not about getting more of the Spirit. It's about the Spirit having more and more of you. Are you open to God manifesting his gifts in us? And are you even willing to pray for them? It says to seek diligently the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Do you pray that God, God, would you by your Spirit give me insight into, into this situation? Speak your wisdom into my life. Bring healing on this person. Lord Jesus, would you, would you give me the gift of tongues if that would be your will for me? And accept it if it's not. Uh, are we open to however God wants to work by his spirit through the church? Because Luke eleven thirteen says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The gift and the giver are the same. The gift is the spirit himself. And the one who has the spirit of Christ has everything. Amen?